curiosity in its larger sense is bigger than just sort of wanting to know. It's a chance to experience and to empathize. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. And one of the fun things about doing this program is the new people it brings into my world. I've met all sorts of wonderful folks, but sometimes I return to familiar ground or at least familiar people. And today, I have the real pleasure of having Laura McBride, an author and very dear friend from college, joining me to talk about curiosity and writing fiction. Laura's second novel, Round Midnight, was just released. The story of lives entwined in kind of unexpected ways and the power of, I guess I would say, random moments. Both Round Midnight and Laura's first book, We Are Called to Rise, are told in multiple voices. And part of what I love about Laura as a writer is how thoroughly she inhabits those many and very different lives and voices. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. That first book, We're Called to Rise, was based on a news fragment, a a tiny bit of a tragic story to which Laura had a thread of a connection and from which she spun a fictional tale that's both heartbreaking and, and uplifting. And that got me thinking about the sources of stories that we tell and what an important but perhaps overlooked part sound might play in that. I love birds. I wonder if there's a good place to go bird watching around here. That's Mars. Daddy, look, that brown dot in the sky is Mars. Part of Arlington soundscape is that magical mix of tongues, the random cacophony of life's unfoldings that happen to intersect in the course of our days on our little bit of real estate right here. It's not unique to Arlington, not unique to Las Vegas, but certainly characteristic and absolutely defining. So do you ever spin stories from those purloined moments? Laura does. Laura writes and teaches composition at the College of Southern Nevada, but today she's joining me to talk about curiosity. So welcome, Laura. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. It made my mind start popping. Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, you have been a beautiful writer as long as I have known you, and I remember a story you wrote in college about a woman named Chloe, and I don't remember any of the particulars besides her Me name. Me either. <laughs> well, I don't remember the story. Well, I remember her name, and I remember being so struck that you had this startling insight into her head and her heart that was just qualitatively different. And in retrospect, it reminds me of a line from Susan Sontag, a writer is someone who pays attention to the world. And I think you were just maybe paying more attention than the rest of us. What do you think? Oh, that that's a beautiful thing to say. 
and I don't know. I I would say that as far back as I can remember, I was attentive mm-hmm. to the people around me, mm-hmm. and it was a piece of who I was. And I think that's amazing that you could remember a story I wrote from that time, because I, I don't give myself much credit for the writing I did at that time, and I don't have any of it. Oh, but wow. Yeah. Well, I wish I remembered... <laughs> more about it, except that it stayed with me, which I think is really interesting. I took a class, actually, at that time. Uh, We were in college, and I took a class uh, on the woman writer, and it was the writer who was living in New York City at the time. Her name was Jane Lazar, and I believe there were five or six women, and we met in a tiny little tower, and we wrote stories. And I'm sure that story was probably written either as part of that class or some idea that came out of that class. Oh, interesting. Well, I know you have talked about that you felt influenced by all the ways that stories mattered in the lives of people who mattered to you. Is that why you write? Mm. Well, my mom used to say that a novel is just as good a place to get the truth as anywhere else. Oh, what a great line. I know. Your, mo- your mom my- is a very wise woman. Can we just say that for the record here? Yes. Can we say <laughs> that? She was so special. Um, and my grandmother, my dad's mother, was a storyteller. And uh-huh. she could, you know, do any accent and remember anyone. And she was she was very funny. And I was named for her. So I think that my mother and my grandmother had very different approaches to the idea of story. For my grandmother, it was entertainment. Mm-hmm. And she always brought in all, she always noticed every odd thing that anyone ever did. And she told her stories uh, in a loving way, but always for the, always for the funny line. Uh-huh. And my mother was more someone who thought of stories as she was not always direct in, in what she said. And sometimes it was hard to know what my mother thought of something, but the way that she would present it to us just as a, as a style where she would tell a story about someone else. And so I think Uh that inadvertently, maybe just her own sort of modesty about expressing an opinion, or maybe she was uncomfortable expressing opinions, um, she taught us to decode stories. It was a way she thought. So that's an interesting way of thinking about it in terms of decoding, because it means paying a kind of attention that's different than just what's literally presented or, you know, kind of thinking about this in another way. Henry James has the line on writing and be the kind of person on whom nothing is lost. So mm-hmm. it sounds like your mom was teaching through allegory at some in some way. I think it was a very sort of one of the ways that we look at the world all the time mm-hmm. without any conscious awareness of it. Huh. And yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So you've got this new book out, Around Midnight, Tell us quickly a little bit about that. Well, it's um, in, in terms of plot, which is, it's very hard for me to think about it in terms of plot. It, it comes at me in a different way. So how does it come at you? For me, the people come, and uh-huh. they live in my head. And in this particular book where there are, are four main characters, um, one of them I had written part of a book about and had meant to feature a novel about. Another had been in my head for 25 years at least. 
Hmm. Another sort of sprang to mind and was the genesis of the novel. And the fourth grew up out of a story itself. So, um, but when I think of the book, I think of those people and, and I, it's more like these people live whole in my head and then I just set them in motion on a given day and they bump into each other and then that develops into a plot, a story. But Round Midnight, to be more practical about it, is, is a story about four women. It's, it takes place over 60 years in Las Vegas. There's basically three sections, a section in the 1950s, a section in the 1980s, and a contemporary section. And mm-hmm. eventually, all of their lives end up intertwining. I don't know if that's the... I think that's the defining experience of reading through the novel in time, that they end up linked. But I'm not sure that that is what one is aware of all the way through. I think one is caught in, in the first story, in the second story, in the last story. Uh, one by one. I th- I, well, I think that's I think that's right. And it was interesting for me to be reading it through the lens of this conversation because uh, first I was reading it because it was Laura, but second and third, I guess I was reading it and thinking about this question of curiosity in writing. But I found myself also thinking about choice because choice and its activation or its seeming inability of options. Um, I don't want to give too much away about the story, but they seemed so big, such big forces in in this particular story. But I wonder, to kind of broaden it to a discussion about sort of writing in general, whether if writing isn't always this combination of curiosity and choice. Well... So choice is so fraught for me as a writer in that Mm. because the characters are um, really fully bloomed in my head and I know thousands of tiny things about them that will never make their way into the book. And that isn't so much the biography, yeah, that would be their resume, but, but, but just the little tiny things, things they notice, what they like to eat, what they... Uh, what they respond to when they hear, uh, you mentioned the soundscape in the introduction, the kind of soundscape that would be in any one of their heads that comes out of their childhood and out of their past. And so where does that come from for you? I think it's the imaginative experience that uh-huh. I uh-huh. I guess somebody comes to me, a character comes to me with a little bit of a hole to them, a, a bit of mm-hmm. personality or a, a trait, mm-hmm. and that catches my attention. And then whether that's curiosity about where that goes it's a combination, I guess, maybe curiosity and imagination and empathy, and I'm drawn forward by, by being interested. And I think of lots of characters, and I don't flesh anything like all of them out, or most of them, and the ones that keep drawing me forward have, have something about them that, that captures my attention and that I can't quite let go of, and, and they you know, kind of enter into my mind when I'm not looking for them, I'm doing something else. And, and then I notice something and I, and I think about it in terms of how that character might notice it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I know I've got somebody kind of resonant in my mind. But you started this question with, this, with the concept of choice. And because I know or feel I know all these things about a character, then as I'm writing, there's, there's, a con- there's a sort of infinite array of choices in front of me on any, at any sure, given moment. Sure, sure. And the process of writing is, is a constant process of choice. 
And some of it is being driven by the voice of the character in my head or the, the where I'm going in terms of narrative action. I, I have a plot in mind. But much of a novel is not known until you're writing it. And very mm-hmm. often I'm I'm looking at a page and I and my character could jump left or jump right and those are radically different choices. And I just keep making them over and over and over and sort of sometimes with excitement because they seem so right and sometimes with sort of terror because <laughs> I don't know where they're going. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm just kind of thinking back on what you said about these fragments of people that you kind of collect and and they sort of build a persona kind of in the back of your head, it sounds like. Do you think that living in a boomtown like Las Vegas makes curiosity or insight, uh, curiosity about or insight about different lives easier? Does it expose you to more stories? Well, I think, you know, the whole country is more interesting than it was when we were younger. I mean, mm. there's just more people here from everywhere and, and more people doing different things. And and I suspect that this is an experience that lots of people have all over the country. But certainly in Las Vegas, where you have not only a boom town where millions of people pour in from all over the world, but a place that didn't that didn't really exist. Well, it existed, but in a very small form of itself. And so there was no existing infrastructure and there were no existing rules and there were no existing places about Mm -hmm. where certain kinds of people would land. So Las Vegas is a place where it is possible to mix with a lot of different people in, in, in more ways than just passing on the street or sharing the same grocery store. And for me personally, that has been very enriching and it snuck up on me. I, I didn't love Las Vegas. I didn't necessarily want to be here. Um, it took a long time before I realized how much, how enriching a place it is, but in ways mm-hmm. that were different than I was expecting. I will say that in kind of knowing you there, it has broadened my appreciation for the place, taking it beyond its caricature mm-hmm. to this rich cacophony of stories, as I said kind of in the start, that there's this, it is such an interesting way, uh, such an interesting place. And and it's in its own way, it's a character in both novels, a very fully realized character. You have a sense of its heart and throb and just beautifully described. You know, it sort of brings you, your descriptions take you to a place that's different than the Las Vegas that people think they know, for those of us who don't live there, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, Las Vegas is marketed. It's a billion-dollar industry, and mm-hmm. and that marketing is done by brilliant and creative minds. And of course, it gets in all of our heads. And if it didn't get in all of those tourist heads, nobody here would have a job. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> as someone who lives here, then and if anyone who lives here, even people who live in it in different ways than I do, you have to find a way to sort of manage that marketed Las Vegas, and then the real place where we all live. And one of the things that I think is quite distinctive about Las Vegas is is not only are people here from all over, but very often people are here without any other family members or other people who are part of their background. And so you have a kind of fluidity to experience. And people are free for better or worse, but I think mostly for 
for better to chart their own lives and how they think about things. And one sees people go through sort of really large evolutions in thought and idea. I do, and my friends do, and the people I interact with at work. And wherever that takes one, it it's interesting to live in a place where a lot of people have had the experience of having their minds changed, and they're mm-hmm. open to the possibility. And that doesn't mean that we, we're all vulnerable to, you know, whichever Pied Piper comes down the road, but just that we do have a lot of exposure to different ideas and everything is out there and you are on your own figuring it out and you're relying on people that you that one might never have expected to have to rely on. I think mm-hmm. that was one of the great mm-hmm. gifts to me is to really love people and truly trust people whose ideas are very different than mine and whose ways of being in the world are different than mine. And that's a rich experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A place actually that relies on some curiosity then. I think so, to get back yeah. to the topic at hand. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So curiosity, it, it's funny because it has this flip quality of we all like to, I think everyone would like to think of themselves as curious. I'm curious. I like to read different things. I like to learn different things. I like to, I love to speak to somebody who has an experience different than mine or who has a a competency that I don't know anything about. I find that interesting. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm totally drawn in by curiosity. And yet it's, you know, curiosity in its larger sense is, is bigger than just sort of wanting to know. Mm, yeah. It's a it's a chance to experience and to empathize. And I think that's where curiosity is close to my writing experience and close to my reading experience. So that anticipates the other side of the question I wanted to ask. There's a there's a relationship, there's a bargain. I think of it as a book bargain between the writer and the reader. And it has a variety of currencies, but I wonder how you think about how curiosity fits from the reader's perspective. Well, I think of it, I guess I think of it from the writer's perspective that I know I have readers who have busy lives and they're Mm going to pick this book up and set it down and pick it up and set it down. And Round Midnight and We Are Called to Rise also are fairly complex novels because they're telling a lot of people's stories at once. Mm -hmm. And the reader Mm -hmm. has to have some patience if, you know, to wait and see how those stories come together. And that's asking a lot for a reader Mm -hmm. and asking a lot Mm -hmm. from a modern reader. And I think about it in terms of leaving my reader with something to be curious about. I want them to sort of have a reason to go back onto the page, wherever they might stop. And that naturally happens at the end of a chapter. But it has to happen in other places, too, so that a reader might say, oh, I, I don't know when this is coming together. Maybe I don't have time for it. But wait, I just want to find out one more thing about that person or that event right. or this situation. So right. in that sense, one, I mean, I am very aware of my readers need to be pulled along and that curiosity is a way to do that. Well, and I can vouch for that. Um, <laughs> having read so, it. <laughs> having read it. Well, and having, and you're right, you have these different, these different lives, these different threads, these different stories, and they get paused and they get paused over long periods of time. So you also... You know, I found myself sort of filling in the details about what might have transpired for people along the way, 
or being curious, it's like, wow, something must have happened in this intervening years. What was that? And you don't fill it in necessarily. You obviously fill in some of that background. And yet you also leave some of it to the imagination. And I think that's an interesting feature of writing, that sometimes the best writing is about the not writing and trusting the reader to fill in the rest. I love that idea. I teach academic writing as a um, composition instructor at a community college. That's my real full-time job. And I always say to my students when we take and we read a little bit of literature in the middle of class that I want them to read it to understand the opposite kind of writing, that when, when, when I ask students to do academic writing to make an argument, I want them to be logical and sequential, and I want them to make all the connections from one idea to the next. Mm-hmm. And I really work with them on not expecting a reader who might have very different ideas to leap from one logical idea to the next. But in fiction or poetry or drama, certainly the kind of writing that I do, I want the reader to leap. I think that 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 the experience of leaping is part of the joy of reading. And also a, a well-written novel, a well-written poem allows for leaps in different directions. So different yeah. readers can fill in those spaces differently and the novel still works. Yeah. And that that is a beautiful thing about telling a story. And maybe it's what my mother was after when she said, a novel is just as good a place to get the truth as anywhere else. Right. Um, where an academic or logical argument is is about kind of closing closing down some of those leaps so that the argument can be very clear. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. So, before we before I have you do my big jar of wannabe analogies, I have one I have one specific question about Round Midnight. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit more, and I'm not going to give the audience anything more than. What June says about life perfects us if we let it. Tell me more mm-hmm. about that, because I think it's, it's such a great line. line in a late <laughs> chapter, and so I I had nothing on the page in front of me. I was starting uh-huh. a new chapter, and I was thinking about June, who at this point has been through a lot of life mm-hmm. and has had some very painful experiences. And June is someone who she's a she's a fun character. She had a lightheartedness to her. She could be wonderful and she could be difficult. And she has both helped people and hurt people in her life. Mm -hmm. And that line came, life perfects us if we let it. Mm -hmm. And when, when, when I write something like that, it like to my mind splits open and I'm, and I'm thinking, Oh, that's just the line I want. And then I'm thinking, Uh is that true? Is that going to be true for me? And, and I kind, I kind of think that is true, but the big emphasis is if we let it. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you described the writing of it there because I read that and I thought it almost doesn't matter what's next in this chapter. That could have been the chapter alone because I thought it was so much to think about. And, and in this spirit of choosing to be curious, I thought, well, life perfects us if we let it, if we choose, if we're curious about what the lessons that life is giving us. So I thought it was just, you know, it's so beautifully placed in the book, but it's almost a book of its own right there. So thank thank you you. for that. Thank you. Yeah. 
So um, before you go, I have in front of me this big jar of wannabe analogies. This and is I'm a going terrifying. To... <laughs> this is a terrifying process. Okay, <laughs> so so you're not allowed to say that because people who are not writers have managed to do this just fine, and everybody is always scared. So I have taken three slips of paper out. One I'm going to open up and be yours. One I'll open up for me, and one I'll open up for our audience. So I'm going to tell you what yours is, and you can think about it for a moment. And then, um, but I'm going to go first. How's that? Gives you a little bit of time. Great. Okay. So yours is honeysuckle. How is curiosity mm-hmm. like honeysuckle? And mine is, oh God, Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> this presupposes I know something about Nintendo. Um, okay. Based on what I know of Nintendo, I would say that curiosity is like Nintendo um, because it's um, highly stimulating and um, colorful and kind of full of surprises and it can be a game that you get better at um, and people have done remarkable and increasingly interesting things with it so that's wow. how curiosity is like nintendo okay curiosity is like honeysuckle one of my absolutely favorite plants oh lovely Yes, because it blooms in the spring, and mm-hmm. it blooms with a few flowers, and then more and more and more, and because its smell is very fragrant and distinctive, mm-hmm. and one is drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if I'm walking by honeysuckle, I stop, and I smell, and I think about it. Uh-huh. And that's like curiosity, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Should I close I the it. circle? And that is what <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what does our yeah. audience get? Our audience has pine cones. How oh. is curiosity like pine cones? Let us know. Hashtag analogy. So thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lynn. It was really fun. It's a wonderful show. And I, I, love, I love listening to it. I love reading about it. I love that you do it. Thanks so much for including me. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. Find us streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Links to Laura's work and other curiosity resources and writing on our Facebook page, Choose to be Curious, and via Twitter at Choose number two, letter B, Curious. I hope you'll follow us both places. Don't forget to send us your pinecone analogy, hashtag analogy. Special thanks to my guest, Laura McBride, and to sources of inspiration everywhere. I hope you'll join me next time when Stacy Snyder, founder of Together Virginia, joins me to talk about bringing curiosity to political differences, being curious across ideological and geographic divides. Until then, choose to be curious.